Okay, everybody, welcome to um, our podcast, the podcast of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation, Yay. Four Thoughts of Our Founders. Uh, speaking of founders, I am um, one of the founders of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation and glad to be here with two of my co-founders, Dr. Herman Felton mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and George T. French Jr. A.K.A. Casper the Friendly Ghost. No, no, not at all. <laughs> See, he's starting off already. The the longest, love you, brother. Love the, you, brother. The longest-serving president in, in the state of Alabama. Not four the long Four years yeah. mm -hmm. in the state of Alabama. Yeah, White or black, public yeah, or private. Uh, over community college. That's mm. it. Other than that, that's it. So, Dr. French. 14 years. Don't start with me. Welcome, brother. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Yes. Then we have a. Uh, then it's we have a another veteran. High education, right? Yes. Yeah. We, we got another veteran of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dr. Theron J. Jackson, the pastor of Morning Star Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. That welcome was the back. Morning, the morning. The star. Morning Star. Yes. Who had a revelation here a couple of minutes ago? You want to share what that revelation was, brother? No. <laughs> no, he should not. <laughs> And uh, what is interesting about Dr. Jackson is that although he is the uh, pastor of Morning Star Baptist Church, he has had a, a long-serving career in uh, higher education. He's worked at Southern University at Shreveport for 12 years as special assistant to uh, the chancellor there and uh, has done legislative work, fundraising uh, for the entire system, and we're just so glad to have you back. Welcome, Welcome back, back. brother. I'm glad yes. to be back. Thank you so much. I yes. appreciate it. Welcome yes. back. Yes, and we are here on Inauguration Day. Let's it give it up for the people that are here. Congratulations, Mr. President. We have a live audience um, today with uh, some of the alumni. Of the health of the Higher Education Leadership Foundation. Yes. Thank you, alumni. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank Yay. you guys for coming uh, to be with us. Um, it's inauguration day for our dear friend and brother, um, Dr. Herman J. Felton, the 17th president of Wiley College. College, yes. Yes, yes, yes. we're excited. So uh, let's get started. We're gonna talk um, about a lot of different things, but but before we do that, we have to have Boy to wonder. have to. Boy wonder. Boy wonder. Um, one of our founders is here making this all possible. Greg yes. Dees is in the house. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Dees. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Felton, this is your day. So tell it us is. a little bit. You know, let's just talk a little bit about how you feel it's, and it, moving forward. It's a real. I'm glad it's over with. Um, one part of it. Most of my colleagues have, uh, yeah, I mean, a ceremonial part of it. You know, I've been grinding since uh, February 28th, mm -hmm. so, um, but my colleagues tell me that in a lot of ways it's uh, a marriage between uh, the, the individual and the institution, so certainly felt like that. The planning stages, I'm just grateful um, that it's over with, but I'm, I'm more appreciative of all the people um, that came to share in this day. Um, so it's, um, it's a pretty surreal day. Um, I've only had to do it once. I hope I never have to do it again. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm pretty excited about it, so I'm happy. But I'm, I'm more excited to talk about you know, crushing this, this myth of this dumbass question that's uh, posed to us all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm ready to get into that. Let's get into it. Yeah, so into uh, it. today we are talking about, of course, the topic that we love so much, love so much HBCUs. <laughs> So uh, let's get into it. Let's. Um, well, it's really today is really about 
really bringing silence to the the question of relevancy um, as it relates to HBCUs. Um, I make it a practice to never respond to that question. If I'm on a panel, um, if I'm around individuals engaging in dialogue um, and they want to want to ask or try and pull me into a conversation about, you know, what's the relevancy of HBCUs, um, I don't dignify it with a response. And so I thought, you know, this platform that we have, which is um, dedicated to the work of lifting folks, uh, also uplifting um, the space, I thought it, you know, be really good for us to have several conversations with different perspectives to talk about why this is a dumbass question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really what we're going to do today. That's the backdrop. Um, that's the backdrop. I'm having a diff I, and I concur with you. I'm having difficulty even preparing my mind mentally to engage the podcast with with the topic. So I, I know exactly what you're saying. So I'm sitting in the chair. How am I? Because I don't answer that question. Yeah. It's, it's such an ignorant question. And it always comes from someone who has a jaded perspective or someone who's already predetermined what they feel about HBCUs and the mm -hmm. relevance. So I'm with you on that, brother. Well, well let me just say what I, <clears throat> what I find interesting about it and the subject matter um, that is semantic to me. And let me tell you what I mean by that, because I can appreciate what both of you are saying. Uh, I, I tried to reframe the question in my mind because as uh, Dr. French has said, many times when the question is asked, posed, it, it emanates from an individual who already has come from a perspective where they're expecting you to defend the presence and to Absolutely. justify the right. presence right, 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 of right. the institution. Well, what I think rather than having a, 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 a perspective that answers a question or that justifies your existence, that perhaps it needs to be an introspective question. Mm -hmm. it, it, are HBCUs still relevant? <clears throat> but when I say that, I say this because when I look at the history of higher education in the United States <clears throat> of America, higher education to me is a microcosm of the larger society in which we live, right. which means it has the same diseases as a larger society. That's true. And uh, it was uh, Bell Hooks who described this society in which we live as a um, imperialistic white supremacist capitalist hetero patriarchy mm. uh, all of which i think needs to be digested and mm -hmm. one of the issues that i have it, when we wrestle with relevance is that if in fact higher education is a microcosm uh, a community a place an idea uh, that is encapsulating in miniature what is the characteristics and the values of the larger culture then uh, hbcus as a member of the higher edu education community uh, I think we become irrelevant when we chase after being like the others. Right. And we lose the sense of what our space is. And so the real question of our relevancy has everything to do with whether or not the mission of historically black colleges and universities remains still right. as education did for black people in general, an unfulfilled, mm -hmm. a broken promise. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes whether or not an HBCU furthers that sentiment by making to children that this notion that our mission statements, why they sound good, they should not be unfulfilled, broken promises. And so the real issue for me is whether or not the HBCU is turning out, turning down the noise you hear externally and focusing on what it is you mm -hmm. should be doing internally. You don't have to get pissed off about it. 
you gotta you gotta check yourself. Right. And, and it is not a question that you look out the mirror to see whether or not you're impressing people, but you out the window to see whether you're impressing people. But you gotta look in the mirror to see whether or not you're impacting people. Right. Well, I, I guess I guess part of my um, <coughs> consternation has to do with not the question itself, because I think it's a, a justifiable question if it's based on some data point. If it's informed by data. I think it's a legitimate question. So if our um, effectiveness, according to the metrics that we are using in higher education, indicate that we're not doing a great job, I think it's a rational question. But the problem is data is not informing that. Empirically, HBCUs are doing such a fabulous job. When you look at the 55% of the STEM discipline graduates that we produce versus PWIs, we are that, uh, PWIs, we are still that caring, nurturing environment mm -hmm. that you cannot find anywhere else. We don't have to scaffold. We understand our students. We can relate to our students and we graduate our students. Right. So mm -hmm. since we're stu still doing mm -hmm. an excellent job and I, I just don't see where it's a, a, a relevant question mm -hmm. to even ask. Yeah. I think I think my issue comes, oftentimes that question is, is loaded, right? Mm -hmm. It's loaded by uh, the person who's asking right. the question, and there's motive behind it. Yep. And so I, I'm, I appreciate <coughs> what you say, Doc, because um, it is actually an opportunity to educate um, if you wanted to. If we, if we pulled out the, st the uh, statistics and talked about our impact on uh, the doctors, the lawyers, the, yeah. the, the yeah. scientists, uh, and just went by hard facts, um, that should be enough. Um, and I remember in 2015 when Gallup poll um, did this study and they juxtaposed HBCU graduates and PWI graduates, and they talked about several different things, but chief among them was um, this newfound um, data, what we already knew, um, but the, the, the interesting thing was this, there was nothing new that Gallup shared with us, but the validity from the, Gallup, the, from Gallup. The Gallup. validity of Gallup saying what we've been saying <clears throat> all along, our, our graduates are more prepared, mm -hmm. our graduates are civically conscious, our graduates um, uh, <clears throat> make more than uh, their counterparts uh, from PWIs, um, they are uh, more likely to feel supported. All those things, all the things that we talk about um, were now, because Gallup did a poll, right now it gave credence to our very being. And I think yeah. I, I'm too attached to the work that we do for me to really be rational when somebody asks me that question. <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to really be rational yeah. for me. Yeah, I, I um, concur with that. So, so how, do we, how do we begin to, to dissect um, that disease um, that that question. How do we begin to eradicate the the, the even mentioning uh, of that question? How is that done? I, I Man, I <clears throat> obviously don't know how to eradicate it totally, but I think at some point what has to happen is that the HBCU has to become comfortable in our own skin, understand what a mission is, and because why is someone going to come to a cheap knockoff of the school up the street? In fact, this school is not necessarily supposed to be the, the, the black version of the University of Texas. 
This is Wiley College, and, and it has its own mission and purpose. And I think what has happened along the way is that um, the 90% has lost faith in the talented 10. Because the talented tenth has decided to move to an island and forget about the ninety who they were supposed to come back and get. Got mine, Phil. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. really, get yours. You know what I'm saying? And so what ends up happening is that it's in the ninety percent where you find the criminal statistics, where you find a lot of the other things that that put us at the top of every list that's bad, at the bottom of every list that's good, because those who have the best capacity to come back and build capacity in the communities have decided to be comfortable somewhere else mm-hmm. and. What what really bothers me is when I meet um, this new generation of young administrators or people who seek to be they get into the HBCU space because there's no <coughs> space for them somewhere else. Mm. They they don't they're not they're not desiring from day one to be in this space. They're mm-hmm. they're trying to build a name in this space to escape to another space, right. which is to suggest that there is something inferior about this space. Yeah. And I think until we find leaders who are in love with the skin they're in and with the space that this is and understand the purpose and the mission of historically black colleges and universities, we're gonna continue playing the get out game. So it's so, internal. So do you think, and this is you know just posing the question, have we turned our backs on our original role, scope, and mission? I, I, I don't think we have. Um, going back to Dr. Jackson's uh, point a moment ago, Dr. Williams, I think the uh, HBCUs we have a very important role in research. Uh, Research, not just in the traditional sense of pedagogy that we do, but research having to do with the effects of the struggles and and battles that we are fighting. For example, we have unintended consequences now when we look at the fair housing laws, when we looked at the the fact that we fought for our people to be able to go to any Mm -hmm. school they wanted Mm -hmm. to, to live in any neighborhood. But when we fought for them to live in any neighborhood, we didn't imagine that all of our professionals mm-hmm. then were going mm-hmm. to abandon our communities yeah. and uh, erode our tax base. So when our children go to the grocery store, they don't see the, the college presidents and the doctors and the lawyers because they, they've all moved out of the neighborhood. But this is what we fought for. But we didn't anticipate when we were fighting for it what the results were. We didn't to. think that flight would, would create deprivation, more deprivation. And that's what it has done. And even within the HBCU community, I had a, a white friend of mine the other day to ask me, well, how could we really turn the tide for HBCUs as far as the fiscal uh, crises that we face? I told him, I said, it would be real easy. If you give me one generation of our athletes coming back to HBCUs. That would change have, the game. It'll change the whole change the game. game. Send mm-hmm. them to the pros. Uh, get the money for all of these television contracts. We, could, we can build the buildings yeah. like the University of Alabama overnight right. if we had if the athletes were to come back. But right now they're being manipulated and used by the right. NWR. Well, well, <coughs> let, me, let me let me say this as well. I think that that if you look at how we see ourselves. Um, such a small group of people shape the perspective of African Americans in America. Mm-hmm. You have the people who are celebrity, and you have whether they're athletes or whatever. I suspect that in any given year, that's about 2,000 people who fall into the category of celebrity mm-hmm. athlete who make over a certain amount of money in seven figures or more. Mm-hmm. It may seem like a lot, but 2,000 people. You got about 200,000 people who end up incarcerated. Mm-hmm who end up somehow or another in an adjudicatory perspective somewhere throughout the course of that particular year. 202,000 people driving the image 
of 34 million people. That's wow. good. And we have forgotten about the low-profile achievers, mm -hmm. those who didn't become athletes, but they mm -hmm. became pharmacists. They didn't become athletes, but they became nurses. They didn't become athletes, but they became productive citizens who still don't give back to historically black colleges mm -hmm. and universities. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. one generation of anybody could do something. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I suspect <clears throat> it's because our anchors are just not deep enough. So let's reverse engineer. Right. So we know that we, we can say almost anecdotally anyway, we can say from inception up up until about the 60s without any equivocation mm -hmm. that there was pride at the <coughs> HBCUs. There was a solid education. Uh, folks were um, um, steeped in tradition. Right. They had everything that they needed to do to leave the place. Mm -hmm ready to go be change agents. Yeah, but the concept, I think, of the time was that, you know, I want my kids to have a better experience. You know, I want my children to have more than what I had. Right, so. So, you know, parents began to say, you know, got, you know, we, we began to get really proud when our students were accepted into Harvard and so, Yale. So that's getting to the reverse engineering. That's getting to wh where things started to erode, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the 60s or, or could we even go as far as the 70s and say mm -hmm. that it was, it was strong there? 80s. What, what happened at that time with our schools? How did they become... How do they go from these these bastions of of brilliance to second class institutions? How did that happen? Because that's that's because where because part of what happens is what she said. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to recommend, and I know this is not necessarily a place for this. I'm not, but Tom Burrell has a book called Brainwashed. It's an old book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everybody should have read it by now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it 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 to me is the the 20th century version of mm -hmm. the Willie Lynch letter. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Backward engineered uh, explained mm -hmm. well. And and this notion of if you can't get your arms around the idea that you believe in white superiority, you at least have to come to grips with the fact that you are at least speaking the language of black inferiority. Mm -hmm. When you start chasing after Harvard, Princeton, because they are better than Tuskegee and something, says who? There are a lot of people who may get a degree, but they don't have a better experience. Mm. And the question becomes, once I leave that institution, did I get a degree or did I have an experience that will change my life inextricably forever? Right? And what happens and what the historically black college <coughs> did and can continue to deliver is the kind of experience that could never be replicated mm -hmm. on another camp. Listen, there are people who are intellectual, who, who are just absolutely best students, who every day are met with microaggressions on the campuses of white institutions. Yes. They are there, mm -hmm. they, they scored a 36 on the ACT, whatever the number equivalent is on the SAT, they are as smart and as brilliant and as beautiful as anybody, but every day they hear, you smart for a black girl. That's right. Mm -hmm. You real smart, microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. those microaggressions, mm -hmm. I believe, put concussions on the psyche of those people who graduate from those schools. And the, when you get enough psyche uh, concussions, you become Clarence Thomas. Well, let me let me ask you though, Doc. Uh, I'm about to shout, Pastor. <laughs> you, are, hey! you, are, you, <laughs> you know, my 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 concern though really has to do with when we talk about Harvard and Yale, we are not we, we are not even 
doing a correct analysis. Mm-hmm. There is a correct analysis. There, when we look at Harvard, that you have to have a 4.0 to get in and an ACT score and an SAT score. Or have a score. Or rich parent. Rich parents. Rich parents. <laughs> Nobody's bribed. Well, anyway. Baby, had my parents bribed, me to, bribed anybody to get me in the grammar. But the comparison, <laughs> the comparison of, of Harvard, there are schools, and they should be white schools, that are similarly situated mm-hmm. to like Miles College, my school, open door admission. Give me a school in Alabama mm-hmm. that has similar characteristics, and let's compare students. Right. But really to even compare students from Harvard to an open door, that's that's ridiculous. Right. And and everyone, I have a friend who, who recently finished Harvard, and she tells me, she said, I said, what was your GPA? He said, 4.0. She said, but everybody at Harvard has a 4.0. Yeah. And what do you really do at Harvard? Uh, you really don't learn. You're already prepared when you go there, by and large, mm-hmm. versus an mm-hmm. HBCU. Mm-hmm. You can come there with it's the proficiencies of a sixth grade, right. it's and you graduate lifting. prepared. Yeah. That's the heavy lift. Mm-hmm. So wanting more for our kids, believing that the attainment of an education at a predominantly white institution was going to give them somehow better footing. Right, so that was the beginning of of the, I guess the the erosion of of our schools. Then you come into um, what would be the next phase? Would it be would it be the mismanagement of of our institutions? Would it be um, the declining ro- enrollments that are are predicated on uh, flight? Like, well, what, know, th- what would be the next step? I think sometimes we we are more we, we, we're harder on ourselves mm-hmm. than we are on anybody else because uh, our scandals come out in our little circles, mm-hmm. and big scandals are swept under the rug for decades and decades yep. and decades. And people are surprised when you go to Ohio State or you go to somewhere else, and all of a sudden they pull back a scab, and there are centuries of infection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm not just something that happened that time. Mm -hmm. We have a way of exacerbating our scratches and they have a way of hiding their scars. And so I just believe that part of it is our perception. Mm -hmm. And as we move out of the 60s, if I could, just kind of in retrospect, it's my opinion that as we move out of the 60s, one of our problems is that we fought so hard for civil rights. And, And the civil rights agenda was anchored in a present day desire for example, to vote, okay? Um, there, there are some rights that are neither derived by the state or given by the state. They're suppo- they supposed to be God-given. Mm-hmm. Those are the rights we really Social call contract. civil mm-hmm. rights, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 but the problem is having the fight for those left us with victories with no real anchors. And I say that because I think the next move is just was just kind of out there, sure. and there was no next move. And so there was a two prong. That's the I point. think I think economics is yep. obviously one, but then we got to remember that the American, in my opinion, when I go back to even slavery, because if you want to go back to the, the the beginning of higher education and the genesis of higher education, it was a system built by the compulsory, uncompensated labor of slaves, Watch brick by now. brick. All of these schools mm-hmm. were built by slave labor, whose, whose great-great-grandchildren have a struggle to get into mm-hmm. the same buildings Absolutely. now. Mm-hmm. So, so, so when I go to that, I say that because there was never a notion of what was going to be next. And so fighting, we shall overcome, but when we come over, what? And here's what I think happened. 
and I'll use a modern day um, just kind of analogy. If, if you were a Jew, Jewish, if you were Jewish, um, and and Jewish people have less than two percent of the population, but they uh, are influential with ninety percent of the Congress. Okay, mm -hmm. so policies and those things are influenced by people who are a small group. But there's a reason why, because if you're going to run for congressman and uh, or a senator in the state of Texas, uh, you want money from people who happen to be Jewish, then you're going to have to do one thing. You have to put a white paper together, and it's going to have to be on file at APEC, whatever their... Uh, and I ask their, that question, yeah. And they're going right. to want to know from you, Where what's you your stand? position on the state of Israel? Yeah. And so what happens with African Americans is we had no Israel. That's true. So when it was mm -hmm. time for That's us good. to be able mm -hmm. to ask for something, mm -hmm. we were all over the place. Yeah. We had no Israel. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a one thing that century, decade after decade, you got to deal with if you're going to deal with black Period. people. Yeah. Yeah. We had no yeah. Israel. We were and, all over mm -hmm. the place. Uh, a career ender if you answer the question <laughs> inappropriately. Yeah. Well, well, I think the answer, we should have come up with that philosophically. Right. Right. And I believe that our Israel should have been higher education, yeah. HBCU. Let me tell you why. I'm not saying it because we're on this podcast. I'm saying because philosophically it's it, it, it could have made the difference. Why? Because if HBCUs were funded such that as reparation right. for the free labor, right. uncompensated, right. compulsory mm -hmm. work of our ancestors, if, if HBCUs mm -hmm. were endowed at the level in the 1970s, of $1 billion per institution, then we come up with our own solutions. Right. We produce the doctors we need, we produce the attorneys, we, we do the research that we need because we are well resourced enough to be able to be independent in how we do the things right. that we do and it continues to reproduce after itself. But when you, when you take, when you are 140 years old as an institution or more and from the beginning you've mm -hmm. had to make bricks with no straw, Right. And you now are in 2019, and the lament of the administration of HBCUs is that we're still making bricks with no straw. That's yeah. unfair, and it should be untenable by uh, by institutions that are HBCUs. Right. Something should have happened should at have the policy focus. level mm -hmm. that said that if you're going to do anything, if you need black people, you got to deal with our Israel, and yeah. our Israel is are true. these HBCUs. Yeah. Well, I think Martin Luther King saw it. He said... Um, in his comments, I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. Hmm. What are your thoughts on that comment? Integrating my people into a burning house. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of different ways you can go with that. Mm -hmm. um, first, I think the prophecy turned out to be true, number mm -hmm. one. Um, we ran uh, with reckless regard to places uh, that Into we thought. Into a place of promise. And, that we yeah, what, mm -hmm. what we thought was promise. Mm -hmm. um, and what's disheartening is that even from then up until now, 50 years later, um, we see the same um, unwelcoming um, uh, welcomes uh, that mm -hmm. in, into those spaces, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can come, but it, it will be at your own peril. Um, you're welcome here. You can have it, acceptance into <clears throat> this institution, but you know you'll be exposed to a little black face. Mm -hmm. Won't hurt you. Um, you can come into the cul-de-sac, mm -hmm. uh, but but hang out over in the but hang out. Yeah, absolutely. 
and, or, we, and we still have to we still have to save those students. Yeah. Those students within our Absolutely. own community that go to PWIs yeah. and they get hurt, we still receive them. Absolutely. And, and we still uh, heal their, their wounds and send them on their way. When we look at our graduation rates, which are um, the whole system needs revamping, uh, when you look at the fact that we say graduation rates as if to uh, indicate that we're charting whether mm -hmm. or not someone graduates when we're really charting whether or not someone leaves our institution. Right. Because they leave our institution and they go somewhere else, but right now we're not tracking them, sure. and it's not part of the graduation rate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When they leave our institution, go to another institution and graduate, we still suffer as a result of those graduations. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have um, lack of pride, we have economics, the inability to make education our Israel, right? Um, as uh, HBCUs or as a black community. Um, and then we, l let's say that took us from the 60s and the 70s, and now we're in the 80s. There, that, that's when I believe there began to be a precipitous drop uh, in our schools. We lost maybe 20 schools in the 80s between uh, 1980 mm -hmm. and 1990. Um, we started with 180 yeah. plus, I, I believe it was. <coughs> 100 and well, it wasn't 180, 137. About 100, yeah, about 137, um, exactly. Somewhere, somewhere around in there. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a big drop between 80 and 90, uh, probably the largest. What happened there? Because I, I think if, if, if it's important for us to be able to say, you know, that question is really irrelevant, I think it's important for us to, to really be able to pinpoint where the decline started, right, where that question came because that's really a new question. It's not necessarily an old question. It's a new one that's growing louder and louder. So if we have context, um, and Jesse Jackson, I think, said it best, without context, it's a pretext for what's next. Mm -hmm. And that can be whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. it, and that's what happens oftentimes when people don't have context, which is what I believe is the root of that question. Mm -hmm. So economics, like a pride, what's the 80s and the 90s? Well, where, uh, where are we at? My theory, not, not facts, just my theory. Um, I, I group uh, African Americans into four categories, uh, generationally, let's say. Mm. So you have people who were born from 1920 to 1942. Mm. I call them um, the, um, the civil rights generation. Let's mm -hmm. just call them the civil rights generation. You have people who were born from 1942 to 1964. I'll call them the black power generation, okay? Then you have people who were born from 1965 to 1983. I call them the integrationist generation. Mm. And then you got people who were born from 1984 to now. I call them the hip hop generation. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so what happened is there was never a question of relevancy in the civil rights generation. There was never really a question of relevancy when it came to the black power generation. They wanted to be sure that the schools were going to be an open space for independent conversation, universal thought, and black power. The problem in the 80s that you call on, look at the numbers, look at the time, you will find that's when the integrationist generation are entering college preparation and entering college. Okay. And that's when the, 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 the divide begins because those are the ones who've been told that that inferiority does exist. Mm -hmm. And by simply standing in the parking space, you'll be a Cadillac, right? Yeah. So by simply going over to where they were, somehow or another, you were gonna be get a, a, a superior education, things were gonna be better for you. And the truth of the matter is, that is also when we began to lose our weight. 
in my opinion. By losing our way, I mean losing our identity. Uh, specifically by that, I mean that any time an African-American who goes to a predominantly white institution, don't care what it is, the only way he or she exists comfortably is that he or she has to be comfortable with the mores and the culture there and drop theirs. They got to be willing to put theirs down and accept that one. And when you put yours down long enough, you don't have it anymore. And so you end up with a scenario where, you, because we want to embrace these institutions that are across town, uh, because if you, if you were, I'll use the church. If you had a church and you want to go to a church where there's a white pastor, a white congregation, if you want to go in, they ain't singing no gospel music and you got to live with that. They didn't say, oh, I see a couple of blacks, we got to learn some gospel songs. No, if you're going to be there, you got to get ready for this uh, chancel chorus, okay? And whatever the case may be, we had to adapt because, but we felt like the adaptation, our strong desire or need for caucasal affirmation made us comfortable in those spaces and they would never do the same thing. You can get a, you can get a pastor, you can get a president who happens to be African-American. You don't see white people hearing about high graduation rates, great programs at your school. You could have the best program in Alabama in pharmacy. White kids are not going to break down the door getting there because there's a sense of inferiority because it happens to be on a black campus. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how good the president is, how good the dean is, they're still black and it's no way they can be smarter <laughs> than me. But we, they don't even have to be smarter than us. Yes. They just need to look different and we say, certainly this guy's be better. Grass is green. Let me, let me ask you a grail. question. Uh, <laughs> the Holy Grail. Let me yeah. ask you a question. This is going to be the difficult one that I think, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be this generation, but it's going to take some courage to have the real conversation that no one wants to talk about. First of all, all HBCUs, we're not homogeneous. Right. Second, all HBCUs are not in trouble. Some of them are doing mm -hmm. very well. Mm -hmm. And we are going to have to do some data mining and look at those HBCUs that are flourishing, doing exceptionally well, look at the correlation, again, go back to Harvard, that they have these standards to get into the schools. The HBCUs that are doing right. better right. are not the open door admissions. I'm an open door admission. But the ones like Howard and those schools who have those stringent, uh, Spelman, Morehouse, Tuskegee, they're not having, they have, they have challenges. I know what those are. But by and large, they're not having these challenges. They're doing the well. The question right. is, when are we really going to have a conversation to determine that if you have a second grade preparation, are you really ready to go to college? So you want to just keep the open door and say, just come. Mm -hmm. oh. At some point, we're going to have to have the real conversation. So the, the, and, and the and real conversation wants to have it. The real conversation is about public education. Mm -hmm. That's the real conversation. The pipeline. Um, the pipeline into and college. The, right. And and here's here's the thing. This is this is this is a position that I'm taking now, and I've been talking with UNCF about, which is what does the Department of Education owe HBCUs, and here's why. If we are already taking the least of us, the less prepared of us, and we're graduating them, mm -hmm. doing a great job, at what point will you begin to fund that exercise, right? We know that right now we can't get resources for remedial um, education, right? right? Right. But if you know that you're sending kids who are not prepared 
you know it full, fully well. You know that you're sending them. You know. Mm-hmm. You're but graduating. We're them. Them but. And you also know that the elite of among us are not accepting them, right? And furthermore, you know that there is a group of institutions that is accepting them, mm-hmm. and they're doing a pretty decent job mm-hmm. of educating them in spite of the fact that um, they're not ready. But they're not going that direction, though. But how, the, how do we get the, the question we get is, that conversation? Is who's, who's posed that question? Right. Who's, where has that happened? Because but right you, now we're saying we're going in the opposite direction with the Department of Education mm-hmm. to indicate if your graduation rates are not at this level, we are going to restrict Title IV funding. Yeah. And we know our, stu- yeah, our schools but, cannot exist without Title IV funding. But you're also having to, in that same conversation, you have schools that are saying, but you're providing the teachers. Well, you know, You're, you should be educating the teachers. Well, what I want to know, and I'm I'm the external person, y'all are experts. What I want to know is why are we consistently voting for mm. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and nothing changes? Mm-hmm. It appears to me that if black people are a instrumental part of electing these mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. we're not focused enough to say. We don't want nine things. We don't want 11 things. We want one thing. And if we had focus on the one thing by right. now, right. we would have been down the road. Mm-hmm. But because we're all over the place, and what will do for us is a ticket, or call my name, shake my hand, take a picture. My hand. I don't give a, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I could care less about shaking the hand of the senator and all this. What about helping the people who live in our community? Right. We're too mm-hmm. interested in photo ops and not the opportunities necessary to change the lives of the people we're supposed to serve. Mm-hmm. Where's the data that speaks to that? Which institutions are putting together that data to present to the Department of Education to, to file a lawsuit and say, you owe us more money right. because these are the things that we're doing? So it's happened a couple of times, and that's an excellent segue to um, the funding, which is what I think in the 80s and the 90s, um, the 80s and the 90s is where we began to see this encroachment on public funding of our um, public HBCUs, right? Our public HBCUs began in the the, Mm -hmm. the 80s and the 90s. That's when they started having these conversations about uh, tying performance um, to, to metrics. And so we started seeing institutions, the public ones, losing uh, their funding. They went, I think, I think HBCUs, the publics went from state supported or no, was it state, state funded, funded to state supported to state supported to That's now correct. what it, what would you call it? Well, it's just a, it's, <laughs> a, it's a drift at it's the mercy drift. of the state at the a mercy drift. of the yes. state, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're looking at declining in the '80s and the '90s. We can we can we can say the beginning of the mm-hmm. public financing decline. Mm-hmm. So we we have in, uh, economics. Pride, lack of support, politics, and politics. You, the, the time you named, if you will see this, is congruent with the time where Ronald Reagan comes on board and everybody begins to start this movement back away from this egalitarian society where everybody is paying for everybody else. And now we move toward a society where you got to pull your own self up and we're not responsible for y'all and welfare, welfare, welfare. Mm -hmm. And all Mm -hmm. of those things are congruent with that same timeline Mm -hmm. where it becomes in vogue to look down on people who are less than and somehow or another blame the victim. Mm -hmm. And so when Ronald Reagan and that era began this movement toward 
uh, ignorant conservatism and George Bush toward compassionate conservatism, it still became an issue where those who are at the bottom were left to languish and to look out for themselves. That's what it was about, in my opinion. That's that politics about. was a part of it as well. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break right here, and mm -hmm. um, we're going to play uh, musical chairs, I think. We, might, we have a ton of guests here. Yeah. Um, that might uh, lend some different perspectives to the conversation, and we're gonna invite some of them in. But 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 before we go, we gotta say thank, thank you. Thank you to everybody. To everybody. Four thoughts of our founders. Four thoughts of our founders. Herman Felton on his inauguration day. Um, um, Dr. Theron Jackson of Morningstar. Visit him on. Line, we'd like to uh, Can you get the see email you address on our right? online campus. My msbc.org or yes. Facebook at Morning Stars Report. Yes, well, yes. I know you. I the know hashtag you is uh, dollar sign MSBC. When is, when is, when is yes. the uh, is cash app? Is that a cash out? Cash, cash app. app. That's cash my cash app. Hey, before you wrap it with um, H, uh, Higher Education Leadership Foundation, when is the next cohort? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when, when yeah, our next cohort, um, we will be June on the beautiful campus. Beautiful campus. Of Miles College. June Dr. Frank? June the 6th through, through the, the 9th. 9th. Our third time. We're going to be on your campus. I'm looking forward to it. We're yeah. going to have a reunion. Yes. Time yeah. as well. So how many cohorts have we had so far? Well, this will be the 9th. The right. IOTA cohort right. is coming in, but this is our annual where we invite um, this falls. This actual institute uh, falls on um, on the. Um, this is the this is the, the uh, cohort that falls on the annual institute where we bring right. all of the fellows back. back. Okay. So, um, so where can they find if anyone wants to play? Um, Do we have any slots left? No, we don't have any slots left. Pimp, Waiting we, list. We big time. No, we don't even have wait lists. <laughs> we just rolling you over into rolling. December. December. Yeah. So there, there's no hope for you. And um, listen, I got it. Even bribes? No bribes. <laughs> bribes no won't felicity. work with, with not with no. us, brother. No felicity. I heard you say, uh, a lord. Excuse me. I, I mean, just pardon me. I heard you say this. This group is called Iota. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the, the next group gonna be called? You know what it is, Pimp. <laughs> you oh know what God. it is. Here you we know go. what it is. See you later. You're breaking up. I'm, I'm gonna be in You're the next group. Breaking up. You're breaking up. Yeah. You're breaking up. Next group. All it off. Yeah. Isn't it the and, uh, and we haven't dropped out to the Omega group? No, yeah. we can't do that. <laughs> no. It, it will be the Kappa cohort. That's right. And it will be here, yeah. uh, uh, all right. here on the campus <laughs> of Wiley College, hey. my brother. December. So you know it's going to be big, 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 big. It is. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be rep um, actually uh, recognizing Herman J. Felton, 17th president, uh, as a founder of Health. Mm -hmm. At the uh, at the institute, which will be here on the beautiful campus of Wiley College, so, so we're looking I, forward I to that, brother. I got to come up with another adjective because you already got beautiful. He has the beautiful <laughs> okay, campus. Okay. okay. And if okay. you have not visited these campuses, I encourage you. Um, your next family vacation. Yes. Please take a moment to visit an HBCU campus. I had an opportunity to visit uh, Tuskegee. Yeah. Um, University and beautiful. it absolutely beautiful campus so take your family take your friends on your summer vacation to visit an hbcu post about us um 
Bring you your know, checkbook. Leave, bring a, leave, your, a, leave a check. Leave a little yeah. coin no, behind. No, leave you ain't a little drip. Or, a little, or a you can put something in the mail and post date the check. Yes, you absolutely. Come on, I don't want no other post. Absolutely. <laughs> Speak well of your HBCU. So right now, if you are a member of an HBCU, if you graduated from an HBCU, you love an HBCU, I'm going to encourage you to tweet, um, Instagram, Facebook, yes. just tag your favorite HBCU. Mm-hmm. Um, and and do no harm. Well, Speak well of our campuses. Well, let me say this: as a person who graduated from a pre- my undergraduate from a predominantly white institution, uh, I was on scholarship at the predominantly white institution, and so uh, I gave them what they paid me for. Watch out! But mm-hmm. both of my children go to HBCUs, and I'm a, an alum, a member of the lifetime member of alumni of two HBCUs. That's a lot of money. And mm-hmm. absolutely. So what happens is. Grambling and Southern, I need to Yeah, the school I competed at, I gave them what they paid for. But Mm -hmm. the HBCUs, I'm paying for what what they give. So So I want you to know that they continue to give. Yes, sir. And uh, so I want to encourage you, you don't have to have been a graduate of an HBCU Mm -hmm. to have benefited from the blessings of those who did found these HBCUs and who continue to keep them open. So uh, open your wallet and give to HBCUs as well. Absolutely. Cash app, too. Yeah. My little niece, his, yeah. his daughter goes to Xavier, and his son is about to graduate from My daughter Southern would be University. mad if you didn't say Dillard. Oh, Dillard. Lord have <laughs> mercy, Dillard. Yes, my niece graduated yeah. from Xavier. And my but son Dillard. will be graduating from Southern, Southern. University. Yes, go Jags. In May. Jaguar Nation. And yeah. I, now, I, I, I chime in. I've got a, uh, my oldest daughter. She's a physician. She was in my first uh, graduating class That's as right. president of Miles, so she's a practicing physician and. Birmingham. My son's a senior graduating at Morehouse, and my daughter is a junior graduating from Spelman. So mm-hmm. what next year? So yeah. we've got a strong right. HBCU yes. family going yeah. too. Yeah, yes. I got two fam. I got one FAMU Rattler, one graduate, then I have another one at FAM. So yeah, and then yeah. Trail. keep the love going. Yeah, yeah, you got to do that. <laughs> yeah. Got to do that. So, yeah. yes. um, but thank you, thank you for coming, brother. We thank appreciate you, everybody. You. Thank and, you, everybody, um, for listening. Yeah, too. Four um, thoughts of the founders. Yes. Yes. So we'll see you next time, yeah. um, and uh, we look forward to you joining us on oh. our uh, mission to lead, inspire, and lift. Hey, can we get a copy of your speech that you made? At, uh, at oh, I cannot. Oh, Goodbye. Come on, please. Signing out. Thank you. She killed it. I heard she killed it. Baby, Herman felt it over your check for the stories I told you must have some kind of pastor. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Watch out now. <laughs> God bless you all. Thank you. We'll see yes, you sir. next time. Yes, all right.